good to see Bud here, isn't it? Brother, we've been praying for you as well as for your family. And if you haven't had a chance to meet uh, Cindy and Vicki, they're just two of many who surrounded Bud over the last uh, three months when Pam first got stick, sick and then the last five weeks that she's been in the hospital. And uh, you won't believe this, but this morning's message was not directly, at least initially, related to the events of the last week. I've been working on this message for a long time. You'll see that here in just a minute. And of course, I'm glad I have the right date on this. Some of you probably noted the wrong date on the missions moment. That's because I practice cloning with those things. I clone the missions moment. And the basics of it, I cloned from the last time, and that was the last time, and I didn't change the date. So thank you for not snickering when that came up. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. Let me read this passage to you. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I have to admit something that some of you may think is a little bit morbid, or you may at least think it's weird, but the very fact that I feel the need to explain my line of thinking at the outset of this sermon is a picture of one of the challenges that I think we face as believers these days. I have to admit that I've spent a lot of time in the past several months thinking about death and dying. It may be because I've been involved with the planning of several funerals. James Carpentier, Johanna Vassanen, Bill Sanders. In fact, Jim Grinnell and I were talking the other day about this message, and I reminded him that I've sometimes referred to Jim as the wedding meister. And that's partly because he seems to get asked to do a lot more weddings than the rest of us, but it's mostly because he's very gifted at doing weddings, and he always does such a great job at weddings. And I told him, maybe I'm becoming the funeral meister, because I seem to de- be doing a few more funerals than the rest of us, at least recently. Now, I'm not sure what that says about our respective giftings, but I'll let you decide that. But perhaps I've been thinking about death and dying because I was at the bedside of many of these people and others often prior to their going home to be with the Lord. It may be because of the serious illness that my mother's experiencing and my dad's declining health makes me think about these things. It may be because I've spent hours in the hospital with seriously ill people like Pam before she went to be with the Lord last Thursday. It may be because I'm in the nursing home each week with Nettie and some of her friends at the nursing home, many of whom have died in the time that she's lived in the nursing home. I feel the need to explain why I'm thinking about these things because really it's not something that we all think about deeply, seriously, very often over a period of time. It seems strange. It seems different, maybe morbid. It seems the only time that we think about these things is when we have funerals. But many of us haven't been to these funerals. 
Either we don't have much of a relationship with the one who died, or our schedule didn't permit us to take time off in the middle of the day that funeral happened to be, or perhaps just because we're uncomfortable with the whole scene. Many of us just don't ever want to think about death and dying because we don't want to. However, when you look at the demographics of this church, that's changing, or it's going to have to change. It used to be that we could go several years here at TCF without ever having a funeral. Now we have some people in this congregation in their 60s, their 70s, their 80s. More than that, we have a very large segment of this congregation who have aging parents, and they're making late-in-life care decisions for their parents. In that large segment of TCF are many who have already had parents facing debilitating illnesses or many who have lost parents in the past few years. But it's not just this segment of TCF that should be thinking about these things. It's all of us. It's a good thing, youth, that you're in the front row because this is aimed at you just as much. If you're a teenager, if you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, these thoughts I'm sharing with you this morning are things that you need to be thinking about as well. Because of what the Apostle Paul tells us here in this passage, because of what we mark in just a few weeks, Jesus' death and resurrection and all that that means to us, it's important for us to think about death and dying and all the related issues. It's important because despite differences in individual circumstances, there's a lot of different ways and times and reasons people pass away. Despite differences in the medical decisions that people will make in later life, there are some common themes that Christians have throughout the centuries thought about and taught about when it comes to death and dying. Paul said to the Philippians in the passage we just read that to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Far better than staying in our mortal bodies. The NIV says, better by far. We'll take a closer look at this passage here in a minute. But if it's far better, why are we so distant from this line of thinking? If it's far better, then why, when death appears imminent, do we fight death so fiercely? Why are we so uncomfortable talking about these things? I read a great book about three months ago, when I, right after I'd gotten home from being with my parents and saw my mother's deteriorating condition. I picked up this book called The Art of Dying, and it's by a Christianity Today editor named Rob Mull. We're going to read some quotes from that book this morning. But in the foreword, let's start with that, by a, a writer named Lauren Winner, we read this. We no longer allow people to say that they are dying, rather that they are battling an illness. Far from encouraging the perilously ill to recognize the imminence of their death, we encourage the sick and their doctors to fight death, but not to prepare for it. Some would say this evasion of death is an improvement. I would say our avoidance of death far from being an advance is false, costly, and alienating. We, the church, need to recover the art of dying. We need to allow dying Christians to be just that, dying Christians who can rail against but also prepare for death. We need to make space for the exhausting, sad work of mourning. I read about a pastor once who said that his church didn't have enough funerals because his church didn't have very many young people, so they didn't have very many funerals. And this highlights, I think, an advantage 
to having a church that's made up of a variety of age groups. It's an advantage because funerals are not just important. They're not just an important milestone for that individual family that's involved. But they are important in the life of the fellowship. They're important because the things that we think about and the things that we remember during a funeral are important for our own individual spiritual formation, our discipleship in Christ, our understanding of His grace, our understanding of His salvation. Our culture simply doesn't know what to think about death, Rob Mole writes. Through medicine and science, we know more about death and how to forestall it than ever before. Yet we know very little about caring for a dying person. We don't know what to expect or how to prepare for our own death. And we're often awkward at best when trying to comfort a friend in grief. We have come to expect medical breakthroughs, vaccines, and wonder-working drugs. It's clear that our paradoxical approach to death is largely due to the fact that we are strangers to death, despite it being ever-present. Think about it. We see death on TV programs. We see it in movies, but it's not real to us. We see it on the news from Japan or the Middle East, and it's not real to us. Death is also not real to us because of some significant ways that people die in modern times. Do you know that in 1908, only 14% of deaths occurred in a hospital or nursing home or facility of some kind? By the end of the century, it was nearly 80%. Of course, there are good reasons for that. One of those reasons is that medical science has made advancements that prolong life. And that's a good thing. But there's the corresponding truth that is often prolonged the dying process. Clearly, medical science has improved life in many ways. But one of the side effects is that we are protected from what dying looks like. Usually, only close family members and friends see a dying person in the hospital. An historian named Philip Ares wrote that it's no longer acceptable for strangers to come into a room that smells of urine, sweat, and gangrene and where sheets are soiled. Access to this room must be forbidden except to a few intimates capable of overcoming their disgust or to those indispensable persons who provide certain services. Unless we're like some of you who've had a loved one pass away recently after a debilitating illness, we're strangers to death. Again, except at funerals. And they don't happen that often, and many of us don't attend. All the things that once prepared us for death, writes journalist Virginia Morris, regular experience with illness and death, public grief and mourning, a culture and philosophy of death, interaction with the elderly, as well as the visibility of our own aging, are virtually gone from our lives. You know what? It hasn't always been this way. It hasn't been this way in our culture in general, and it hasn't been this way among believers. In every phase of Christian history, the church has wrestled with how to help believers die well and how the family of God can join together to provide hope, help, and support when one of their own dies. Through much of church history, death hasn't been just a medical event, a medical battle to be fought. It also wasn't just about the loss of precious relationships to be mourned, though it clearly was that, and it is that. For the church, 
death was a spiritual event. And it was a spiritual event that required preparation. And not just for the person dying. Not just for family and friends, but for the entire church with the knowledge that it's something we will all face. Though it seems distant for many of us, in the scheme of things, life is just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. Yes, it's cliche, but life is short. That was especially true in the second half of the 15th century when the plague devastated Europe. The church at that point was very actively involved in preparing people for death because so many people were dying. Sometimes whole towns died from the plague. No one was immune. And so churches published booklets. They published these tracts on what was called the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. These were books about how to practice good deaths. There were some common themes in these booklets, some common themes we need to recapture in the church today. Some of these themes were that death requires preparation. That's what we're doing here this morning. We're thinking about these things. We're preparing our minds, our spirits. The dying process is a deeply spiritual event. Death is to be actively undertaken. Death is a public and instructive event. And death injures the community. Rob Mole writes that the Ars Moriendi tradition blossomed not only because of the emergence of the plague, but also because Christian tradition asserted that the death of a follower of Christ was to be different from those who die without faith. This life is only the prelude to an eternal life with Christ. We, like Jesus, will be reunited with our glorified bodies. We will worship God corporately for eternity. So we have reason to hope and to be in peace as our life on earth comes to an end. Today we know more about death than we've ever known before. We know more about how to delay death than ever before. Medical science, nutrition, general care for our health are things that many of us rely on. And that's all well and good. But you know what? Regardless of how well you eat, regardless of your genetic makeup, Regardless of the longevity in your family history, regardless of how much you exercise and take good care of yourself, the day will come. The day will come. Your life on earth will end. If the Lord does not return first, you will die. Does that seem like a morbid thought? I'm sorry if it does, but death is an undeniable fact of life for all of us. That and taxes. Unless, of course, you take the view that this sign has. Can you read it? It says, taxes always. If you pay taxes, if you, if you owe taxes, pay taxes from Roman. And then it says, death, there's a loophole. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we will all die. Because of that, I think it's important for Christians to think about and prepare spiritually for this inevitable event in each of our lives and the lives of those we love. It's at least as important as caring for our physical health and well-being, into which many of us invest huge amounts of money and time. Now, Paul thought so, and he wrote to Timothy, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So here we see Paul again, 
What's he doing? He's prioritizing, he's comparing and contrasting. In this case, bodily discipline on the one hand with godliness or spiritual discipline and making the point that the promise of spiritual things benefits us both in the here and now as well as in the life to come. So don't, hear, don't go away from here this morning and say, Bill said you don't need to take care of your physical health because we're all going to die. We are all going to die, but you do need to take care of your physical health. I'll take advantage of that little profit. It's just that by comparison to godliness, it's of little profit. I take care of myself. Believe me, if I didn't attach any importance to that at all, I wouldn't work out six days a week because it's not that much fun. But Paul tells us that godliness is profitable for all things, including the present life and the life to come. That's why Paul, for him, the thought of death was not in the least bit morbid or out of bounds. He writes about death almost matter-of-factly. Let me read the passage we opened with again. Let me read it this time from the New International Version. Philippians 1, beginning with verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now we see here several things that are instructive for us. First, we see the very real tension that Paul is wrestling with between two good things. Now, Bud wrestled with that in a different way with Pam over the last several months, but especially in the last eight days. The doctors told Pam, they told Bud, they told the family about eight days before she died that there was little chance that she would recover. And that was less so as each day passed. But Bud wanted to hang on to that chance. And so he prayed, as many of us did. He prayed for healing. Yet Bud also said that he had released Pam to the Lord long before she passed away last Thursday. Because Bud knows that Scripture tells us that it's appointed for us to die. Bud knows that God has numbered our days. He also knows what Paul tells us here in Philippians. To be with Christ is better by far. That's true for Pam, and someday that's true for each of us who are Christians. So Paul was torn. Bud was torn. Sometimes we are torn. Sometimes, you know what, it's hard to know whether we should pray for healing or pray for mercy and grace as God ushers a believer into eternal life. But you know, sometimes I think we can pray for both, and we can rest in God's perfect plans. The King James Version puts Philippians 1.23 this way, For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Don't you love that word, betwixt? Isn't that a cool word? I wanted to use that translation here. You know, this is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version this year. And I thought it was kind of cool, so I thought I'd read that word, betwixt. Paul's essentially saying that he cannot determine easily between these two choices that are both good. 
The word rendered I am in a strait means to be pressed on or constrained as in a crowd, to feel oneself pressed or pent up so as not to know what to do. And here it means that he was in perplexity and doubt and did not know what to choose. The words of the original are very emphatic. They appear to be derived from a ship when lying at anchor and when violent winds blow upon it that would drive it out to sea. The apostle represents himself as in a similar condition. His strong affection for them bound his heart to them as an anchor holds a ship to its moorings. And yet there was a heavenly influence bearing upon him like the gale upon the vessel which would bear him away to heaven. Now, as Paul considers this dilemma, writing to the Philippians, it's also clear where he begins. He's thinking at first about what's good for him if there were no other considerations. At first, in verse 21, he says, for me. In some other versions, it says, for to me. For Paul, both choices were good. But to depart and be with Christ was better by far, and that's where Paul's challenge begins. I think it's clear that if Paul didn't have any other considerations other than his own peace, his own safety, his own comfort, he would say, come take me now, Lord. Why else would he say to be with Christ is better by far? How else could Paul so casually call his own death something so simple as departing? It's important that we understand how forceful these words, better by far, really are. In the Greek, it's a double comparative. It means by far the more preferable. In our vernacular, we might say way, way, way better. It's a very emphatic statement. Better beyond all expression. That's how Paul understood his death. That's how Paul understood the death of any believer in Christ. So Paul didn't really have a fear of death. He was absolutely confident that when he departed this life, he would be with Christ. At the very moment he died, he'd be with Jesus. Alexander McLaren, the great Scottish preacher, said he speaks of it as departing, a metaphor which does not, like many of the flattering appellations which men give that last enemy, reveal a quaking dread which cannot bear to look him in his ashen, pale face. Paul calls him, he calls death, gentle names because he fears him not at all. To him all the dreadfulness, the mystery, the pain, and the solitude have melted away, and death has become a mere change of place. The word literally means to unloose and is employed to express pulling up of the tent pegs of a shifting encampment or drawing up the anchor of a ship. In either case, the image is simply that of removal. It is but the last day's journey, and tomorrow there will be no more packing up in the morning and resuming our weary tramp, but we shall be at home and go no more out. So has the awful thing at the end dwindled, and the brighter and greater the land behind it shines, the smaller does it appear. The apostle thinks little of dying because he thinks so much of what comes after. Isn't that great? Paul reinforced this confidence as well as this tension that we all live with in other places in Scripture. He wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, 
because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made for us this very purpose, or has made us for this very purpose, and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's the kind of guarantee I like. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. And here in this last verse, we see another theme that's also present in the passage in Philippians. We make it our goal to please him, either here on earth or in the presence of God. In Philippians, Paul said, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. So Paul, despite his struggle, despite being torn betwixt two good choices, was convinced that it was more necessary for his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as the other churches he ministered in, that he remain, even though it was for him by far more better to him to be with Christ. It was by far better. Now, of course, it's not as if Paul really got to choose between these two things, whether to live or to die. But the Holy Spirit gave him a confidence so that Paul could say, I know that I will remain. Now, we don't always know like Paul knew. And we don't always have a sense when our time is short. Sometimes people do, sometimes we don't. Paul had that sense later in his life when he wrote this to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Commentators have noted that 2 Timothy is kind of a somber passage of Scripture. Here, Paul's imprisoned again, but unlike when he wrote to the Philippians, and at that time he had confidence that he was going to survive this particular ordeal in prison, Paul was in prison again, and he had a clear sense here that his earthly life was nearly over. Unlike his first imprisonment in Rome when he was in a house where he continued to teach, this time he was probably confined to a cold dungeon awaiting his death. This was about the time Emperor Nero had begun a major persecution in A.D. 64 as part of his plan to pass the blame for the great fire of Rome from himself to the Christians. This persecution spread across the empire. It included social ostracism, public torture, and murder. As Paul was waiting to die, he wrote this letter to his dear friend Timothy, a younger man who was like a son to him, This was written in approximately A.D. 66 or 67, and these are the last words we have from Paul. So while the circumstances were different, while the understanding of his fate at this time was different because his fate had changed, the confidence in where he was headed remained the same. 
and in the sense that this was better by far, that was unchanged too. Now, because Paul was human like we are, you have to kind of assume that maybe he was at least a little bit apprehensive about death, at least in the sense that this was something he'd never done before. And he didn't know what the process of dying would feel like. But what was beyond the moment of death was what gave him confidence and hope. And it mitigated any fear that he felt about the moment of death itself. Again, quoting Alexander McLaren, he has calmness in his confidence. There is nothing hysterical or overwrought or morbid in these brief words. So peaceful in their trust, so moderate and restrained in their rapture. Are our anticipations of the future molded on such a pattern? Do we think of it as quietly as this man did? Are we as tranquilly sure about it? Is there a little mist of uncertainty about the clearly defined image to our eye as there was to his? Is our confidence so profound that these brief monosyllables are enough to state it? Above all, do we know that to die will be gain because we can honestly say that to live is Christ? If so, our hope is valid and will not yield when we lean heavily upon it for support in the ford over the black stream. If our hope is built on anything besides, it will snap then like a rotten pole and leave us to stumble helpless along the slippery stones and the icy torrent. It is Christ and Christ only who draws us across the gulf to be with him and reduces death to a mere shifting of our encampment. Isn't that a great way to think of death? It's a mere shifting of our encampment. Paul's only reason reason for wishing to die was to be with Christ. It's not because he was sick of life. It's not because of the sorrow or pain that he experienced. And if you read your New Testament, you know that Paul had his fair share of that. He wanted to be with his Lord and Savior. He preferred it. Alexander McLaren wrote, many of us cling to life with a desperate clutch, like some poor wretch pushed over a precipice and trying to dig his nails into the rock as he falls. Some of us cling to it because we dread what is beyond, and our longing to live is the measure of our dread to die. But Paul did not look forward to a thick darkness of judgment or to nothingness. He saw in the darkness a great light the light in the windows of his father's house. And yet he turned willingly away to his toil in the field and was more than content to drudge on as long as he could to do anything by his work. Blessed are they who share his desire to depart and his victorious willingness to stay here and labor. They shall find that such a life in the flesh too is being with Christ. He is no more in a strait betwixt two or unwitting what he shall choose. He chooses nothing, but accepts the appointment of a higher wisdom. There is rest for him and for us in ceasing from our own wishes and laying our wills silent and passive at his feet. You know, one of the many things that we can be absolutely certain of is that we are immortal until our work is done. Let me say that again. We are immortal until our work is done. Paul knew when he wrote to the Philippians that his work wasn't done. And then when he wrote to Timothy just a few years later, 
he did have a sense then that his work was nearly complete. Whatever medical decisions we make under any circumstances, we can live out our faith in God, our love for one another, and our confidence in the resurrection. That's what this is all about, isn't it? This is our confidence in the resurrection. Death is still, as Paul wrote, the last enemy. It's not a part of God's primary purpose for his creation. Yet, for the follower of Christ, death is part of God's mercy. It's the last of life's miseries. It's the beginning of new life in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There is no evil so great that God cannot bring joy and goodness from it. This is why death deserves attention in life. Because we instinctively want to avoid it, to turn our face away, it is good to look death in the eye and constantly remind ourselves that our hope is in God who defeated death. St. Isaac the Syrian wrote this, prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, come in peace, I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. Let me close with a scripture that isn't often heard outside of funerals. Usually this passage of scripture is read at the graveside. So if you haven't been to a funeral recently, it's worth hearing today. If you have been to a funeral recently, may this passage of Scripture bring you encouragement and hope in the Lord. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up, in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement and the hope that we have in the Word of God. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the sure and certain knowledge of the coming of our Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We thank you, Father, that your Word tells us that to depart and be with Christ is better by far. We're grateful for these truths, Lord. We're grateful for these truths because they comfort us when a loved one has passed. We're also grateful for these truths, Lord, because we know that 
short of you returning before our physical death, we will all face that moment when we pass from this life into eternal life. So, Father, we do hang on to these truths that death has lost its sting, that you have achieved victory over sin and death. Father, help us to live our lives with an understanding of these truths. May they motivate us to kingdom service, and may they encourage and give us hope when that moment arrives for anyone we love and when that moment arrives for us. Thank you, Father, for the richness of your word that gives us this encouragement and hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.